Beacon Cycling, a history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1989, Miguel Indurain won Paris-Nice. In his fifth year as a professional cyclist, this was Indurain's first stage race victory outside of his native Spain, and it announced his pedigree as a future stage racing champion. As would become customary for Indurain's victories, he won the 1989 Paris-Nice without winning a road stage. His race-winning move came on stage five from Toulon to Saint-Tropez, where on the Col de Vignon with 22 kilometres to the finish, he attacked with Frenchman Gérard Rouet. By the time the pair reached the finish down in Saint-Tropez, they had a gap of one minute and three seconds over the other major challengers, which was enough for Indurain to take the leader's white jersey away from another Frenchman, Marc Madio. As would also become customary during Indurain's stage race victories, he gifted that stage win to Rouet as he kept his eyes on the bigger prize. The final stage was the iconic time trial up the Caldez. Indurain had a 45-second gap over the Irishman Stephen Roach. Roach said on the morning of the final stage, I just want to win a race. The 1987 World Championships, when he sealed the Triple Crown of cycling, had been the last time Roach had chalked up any sort of victory. Roach dominated that time trial, achieving the third fastest ascent of the Caldez ever recorded. He chopped 32 seconds off the lead of Indurain to win the time trial, but it was Indurain who clung on to the overall victory by a 13-second margin and became the first-ever Spanish winner of Paris-Nice. Since Roach managed to win the Giro, Tour and Worlds in the one year in 1987, the rider who has come closest to emulating this feat was Miguel Indurain himself. In 1993, Indurain won the Giro and the Tour double for the second year in a row, something no other rider has ever done. And he then went on to the world's road race in Oslo and finished second to a young American called Lance Armstrong. Well, welcome to this, the third episode of This Week in Cycling History. And uh, you've, you've got the better of me here, Kelly, and I was expecting wall-to-wall Irish stuff this week. Yeah, it seems the obvious thing to do anyway with Paris-Nice, seeing as how it was just absolutely dominated by Sean Kelly for a while there. But um, ah, I thought I'd go with the, the more unobvious options. It's funny, I mean, you mentioned there that Indurain, um, one of his one of his kind of trademarks was that he won races without winning stages. Yeah. But there were loads of occasions where he proved him that, you know, that he could be a good all-round roadman as well. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, I, in, in that 1993 World Road Race Championships, I mean, he, he came to the finish. Armstrong finished on his own, uh, you know, almost a minute ahead of everyone else. But um, in the group behind, there was about... I can't remember, 10, 12, 15 riders. And, and, you know, he won that sprint and he was beating guys like Johan Museo. He was really, really good in a sprint when he wanted to be. And um, he, he did it again, actually, in um, in the 1995 Worlds when his teammate Abraham Alano went up the road and won the rainbow jersey. He he came to the, the end again with a, with a group and again he beat them. So, you know, he could sprint when he wanted to, but um, he just... Uh, I, I suppose the the image of of Indurain over the years is that he's this modest, unassuming character who who's willing to uh, give away these victories. I think he was probably focused on money as much as anything else. It maybe so, maybe so. Yeah. I, mean, I think one of the problems is when you're such a good time trialist, there's little incentive to waste your energy anywhere else, yeah. and and that's that's blighted his um his heritage a wee bit. I mean, I remember the stage in Liège, which where Brunel pipped him to sprint. Yeah, and, and the hills of the Ardennes, he just tore the race apart. Yeah, where Brunel did absolutely nothing, only <laughs> on his wheel the whole time. Yeah, the quote is he said it was like sitting behind a motorbike. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funny though, because I mean, you've got in the notes um, about gifting stages, and I'd never actually thought it was that controversial. You know, there's a long history of it in the sport that if you've got your eyes on the bigger prize, if someone will work with you, then you gift them the stage. 
But yeah. the, the big bust up, of course, was uh, Pantani and Armstrong won too, wasn't it? Yeah, and Armstrong has lived to regret that ever since. You know, he, he's he's always said like, oh, I've never I've never won in the Von Two. And when he came back to the Tour de France in 2009, you know, I'm sure he really wanted to win that stage. It was eventually won by Juan Manuel Garate as uh, Schleck kept on turning around to try and get Frank Schleck onto the podium. Yeah. Um. He he he. You know, there was no doubt he wanted to win that because he he regretted ever since gifting Pantani the stage. And um, you, I suppose you just wonder how much Indurain regrets gifting these stages here and there. We we often come back to talking about the 1993 Tour de France, but he he did that with with Tony Rominger as well. Yeah, for a couple of stages in, in the mountains. I don't know though. I mean, I think if you look at Indurain and you look at the other people who've left the sport, and I'm talking about Armstrong with a complete inability to retire, um, as well as you know, great champions who've who've committed suicide and all sorts of stuff after they've gone from the sport. Indurain's the one who just seems to be a kind of a, a happy Spanish bloke. Yeah, he 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 definitely seems happy with his with his Palmeiras and does does not bother him at this stage. But uh, just speaking about um, gift gifting stage wins and and having your eye on the overall prize, I was in um, I was in the pub a few weeks ago w- with Sean Kelly. Hang on, do you want to say that again? <laughs> it sounds ridiculously Irish, but it, he, I, I wasn't just in the pub and he, he was there. It was a night where he was doing a, a Q&A and, uh, you know, it was well organized. He was up on a, a kind of a stage and, and he was being interviewed and asked questions. And um, he was asked about the 1991 Nissan Classic where um, he was away. He got away in a breakaway with Sean Yates. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he uh, somebody asked him, you, you know, how how could Sean Yates have possibly beaten you on the stage that went up St. Patrick's Hill four times? And uh, he, he I, I don't think he has ever admitted it before. I, I mean, it was obvious, but he, he gifted that stage win to Sean Yates because he wanted the overall win. And uh, he, he he can be very funny, you know, in person. He has a little chuckle to himself and uh he, he said that he was away in the break and Sean Yates is, is a big, it was a really, really rainy day and Museo had the leader's jersey and uh, Sean Yates and Sean Kelly ended up in a breakaway together. And, you know, after a while, Sean Kelly realized he, he was going to win this thing overall if they if they kept their gap. So he said to Sean Yates and he just turned to him and he kind of looked, he turned around and looked at the audience and he said, so uh, we uh, we did the deal, <laughs> is, is how we put it. So, you know, he, Sean Kelly gifted that stage win to, to Sean Yates. And, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a funny quirk of the whole sport that this thing, that this sort of thing goes on. I mean, it's essentially, you know, race fixing. But um, it, it's, I mean, if it happened in, in as it does in, in sports like cricket and, and football, you know, people go. But do you remember the great drama when um, there was the first, I think it was the American Grand Prix, where Barrichello and Schumacher were trying to decide who was one two. And you, you, yeah, and Barrichello essentially stopped on the line. Yeah, no, you would have thought that you know the world had come to an end with a controversy about that, but it's just part of our cycling heritage, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. It's just part of the sport, and it's just been going on for so long. It's just it's take it's taken as a given that this sort of thing goes on, but it it adds a, a, another layer of of intrigue and and uh, kind of excitement and and uncertainty as to what's what's going on and it, i think it's great <laughs> now all of the bits are about uh, paris nice this week so do you want to give us our next wee segment 
1999, Luc LeBlanc announced his retirement from professional racing. LeBlanc had suffered with injuries for an extended period, and his Italian Palti team were growing weary of LeBlanc's inability to achieve big results. Since a Tour de France stage win in 1996, LeBlanc's only victories had come at the Giro del Trentino. In early 1999, relationships between LeBlanc and his Palti team were strained even further when Richard Veronc, who was still in denial after the Festina affair the previous year, joined the team as a co-leader. LeBlanc was unwilling to compromise his position as team leader and consequently the 1994 world champion stepped away from the sport at the relatively young age of 32. After LeBlanc won the rainbow jersey in Italy, he caused a stir the following year when he decided not to compete in Paris-Nice with his new Le Groupement team. He was the first French world champion to ever willingly not compete in the race to the sun, deciding instead to take part in the Classico Orsien in Colombia. Paris-Nice race director said at the time, in 1995, that she found LeBlanc's decision shocking. She said, I'm extremely annoyed. I go to great efforts every year to invite the main French teams and the team managers do nothing to ensure that their best riders take part. Paris-Nice is part of our cycling heritage, but some people don't understand that, but we can get by without him. LeBlanc would eventually ride neither race due to an illness, which he credited to a dodgy yellow fever injection given to his entire team. This was the least of LeBlanc's worries, as his Le Groupement team, amid allegations of tax evasion and pyramid schemes, completely fell apart with serious financial difficulties. But moving back to 99, although LeBlanc's retirement signaled the end of a great French rider's career, he would perhaps not be missed by some. Robert Miller had this to say about the Frenchman. A sad case of a boy in a man's shoes, a strong-willed, weak-brained hypochondriac with bad feet, the author of 1001 Excuses, Unbelievably strong, totally unpredictable. The eyes still see, the legs still turn, the brain is stillborn. You know, it's funny with LeBlanc. I, I, I liked him so little that I can't really remember that much about him. It's weird, isn't it? How our brains select the, you know, the, the riders we like and keep the memories of them. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, that 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 um, that, that quote actually came from. Um, I think it was originally in one of the cycling magazines, but it, it, it was from Robert, the book about Robert Miller, Richard, written by Richard Moore, which is which is fantastic. I'm, I'm sure as a Scotsman, you've read it. Well, I actually rode out to a time trial, uh, a 10 mile time trial with Richard once, um, although I doubt if he remembers me. He's a, he was a big bit of the Edinburgh cycling scene. Did you beat him? Uh, oh, God, no, no, absolutely not. He was a fast bloke in his day um, and a damn good writer now. But... I remember LeBlanc, I think, on, on Hotocam, linking it to Enderain. He was just ridiculously strong, but Miller was right. I don't think he really had a racing brain on him. Yeah, I mean, you think back, like like you say, it's it's hard to to think of, of you know, more, more than a couple of his of his wins. He just, uh, I don't know, I, I, he, he, he'll probably look back at his own career and think, Jesus, I could have done a lot more there. You know, he, he really didn't, um, he probably didn't, fulfill his potential as well as as well as he could have the big thing for this is i mean we had the festina affair um and of course leblanc had ridden for festina uh, but you're talking about legroupement that for me was the kind of final nail in the coffin of a, a really horrible horrible time for the sport um it was the big chance that graham abri had had to get into professional cycling yeah, that's a that's a tragic tale as well, which I, I suppose we might get into another week. But that that was very sad, you know, that he 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 was denied that opportunity after that team team just shunned him. Well, and also I think um, he he attributes a lot of the shunning to the fact that he wasn't prepared to pay the uh, yeah the, the donation for you know 
the doctors, if you like. Yeah. But I mean, that team was never going to succeed. Their jersey was too humpty. <laughs> it was terrible, actually. I, it only it dawned on me yesterday. I was doing a bit of research, and I, I you know, typed in Le Groupman into Google, and one one of the uh, one of the first things that co- comes up was like a list of the worst ever cycling jerseys, and it, it really was horrific. No, it looked like somebody had been sick in a tea towel. It was really nasty. Yeah. Um, this is really weird because uh, you talked about um, LeBlanc wanting to go to Colombia instead of Aiden Paris-Nice. Mm. And that really was a slap in the face because the one thing the French tend to do is stick together. You know, the French riders tend to support French races. And for a, a French world champion, that must have been a hellish thing for the organiser. Yeah, I mean, you know, Thomas Vockler is, is the French, I suppose, darling. Maybe not amongst the peloton, but amongst the the media. And it, I mean, he's not the world champion, but it would be akin to him saying, "No, I'm 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 not going to ride Paris Nice. I'm I'm going to I'm going to do my own thing." It was a, a kick in the teeth to the organisers, but I suppose it just it shows the the prestige of the race that that uh, you know the, if you're a French ambassador for the sport, you know you are expected to to ride this race, and yeah. and and you know it it is the second most important race in France, and. Um, yeah, for for a world champion not to turn up, I, I, you know, it's an unusual decision for LeBlanc to make. I mean, why would he not want to? Well, maybe jersey in 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 such a race. It's a strange. It was a strange one. Because apparently he was thick as mince. I think's the answer to that one. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah. The final piece features another Frenchman who was the first person to win five Tours de France. Do you want to tell us about him? In 1966, Jacques Anquetil became the first rider to win two consecutive editions of Paris Nice. Although the Frenchman had won Paris-Nice four times already, he had never successfully defended his title. In 1966, victory in this famous French stage race would be all the sweeter for Anquetil, as he beat his old foe Raymond Poulidor into the second place. But it was not a straightforward victory for Anquetil. On stage six, a time trial in the afternoon of a split day's racing, Poulidor for once actually beat Anquetil in a time trial. He put a second per kilometre into Anquetil over the 36-kilometre course. This 36 seconds also amounted to Poulidor's overall lead over Anquetil with just three stages remaining. But on the penultimate stage, Anquetil placed time trial sized gears on his bike in anticipation of an attack on the descent of the final mountain. Anquetil rode the last 35 kilometres alone and put 1 minute 25 seconds into the bunch, which included the hapless Poulidor, who would have to settle for second place once more. But there was controversy after the race, as Poulidor and his Mercier team accused the Ford team of Anquetil of blocking tactics in the peloton. The claim was that the Ford team were physically pulling back the Mercier riders as they attempted to organise a chase. But after a thorough investigation, the complaints were ignored and the results stood. Poulidor said afterward, in disgust at the outcome, that Anquetil is the real boss of cycling. Indeed, I think that's uh, that's fair to say. And- I mean, Onkatil, everybody talks about this great rivalry, and I think you and I have talked about it in the, the segments that were in Velocast Race Radio. Yeah. It's that Onkatil didn't actually think of Pulidor as a rival at all. Yeah, that's it. I, I can't remember the exact quote that I, I put into one of the snippets before. It was like, I've raced against Pulidor so many times and I've beaten him. You know, it was a ridiculous amount of those times. And he said, what rivalry? Like, <laughs> there's there's no question that I'm better than him. You know, it, it was all... Uh, I, I suppose Anquetil kind of found it, found it amusing, maybe, that it was built up so much in the media and that he was just able to beat this guy at will. But uh, I, I suppose I should say that Raymond Poulidor did win Paris-Nice twice. Uh, you know, he, 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 wasn't, uh, he wasn't hapless all of the time. 
he did be, he did win twice. And he beat, beat Eddie Merckx into second place in one of those years. Yeah, I mean, Pulidor was actually a good rider. He was just unfortunate. A bit like Jan Ulrich and, and Armstrong, I suppose, if we take away any, any kind of suspicious connotations. Um, but that he, he raced against an Onkatil who was, you know, in his prime and possibly one of the best time trialists the world's ever seen. Yeah. And then in the second half of his career, he came up against Merckx. And what the hell are you going to do about that? It, it, it is unfortunate. And, and actually, just to touch on that, I remember saying before, uh, just to go a completely different direction in, in the classics, Ro- the same thing happened to Roger de Vlaminck. He he came up against uh, Merckx and Eno in their primes, and man, did he have a good career! Like he won everything, and and just to, to come up against those two was, and and do what he did was really impressive. But but yeah, it does it it, it was it was hard for Pulidor uh, coming up against uh, Ankhtil and Merckx for his whole career. It was it was, <laughs> I suppose it was unfortunate. In another life, he would have he would have won five tours himself. Yeah, and, and Devlamic without Merckx would have been Merckx. Yeah, I mean it's as simple as that. He would have devoured the sport in the way that Merckx did. Yeah. Well, one of the other things about the 1966 Paris Nice was uh, Eddie Merckx came fourth that year, which was actually one of his first professional races. And Eddie Merckx won Milan San Remo the, the following week, and uh, he he would go on in 1969 and 1971 to win Paris Nice and Milan San Remo in the same year. And, you know, those two races, you know, Paris-Nice ends and Milan-San Remo is only a couple of days after Paris-Nice ends. And, and that double is quite rare. It's only been done by four riders, Fred De Bruyne, Eddie Merckx, Sean Kelly and Laurent Jalabert. And uh, it, it's a skill set that's, I suppose, is maybe is quite rare amongst riders to be able to, uh, you know, to win Paris-Nice, you have to be able to time trial well and, and cover cover attacks and be aggressive. And, and, and then to follow that up with, with the, the strange slog of of 300 kilometers of Milan San Remo that sometimes comes down to a, a, a who is less wrecked at the end race um, it, it is a an unusual skill set to have and I'm just wondering you know is there anybody in the peloton at the, at the moment that is capable of winning those two races that they're so different you know I, I, I don't know if there is I suppose you'd, you'd kind of think of Philippe Gilbert that he is capable of winning anything but he, he he's never really seemed interested in Paris Nice. I don't know if there's anybody else. I, I think the sport's actually changed too much, to be honest. There's too much specialisation. I yeah. mean, if if somebody with, you know, the skill set like Gilbert to win both Paris Nice and Milan San Remo did win both, to me it would indicate they peaked far too early in the season and they were robbing themselves of victories later on. Yeah, that's just it. Like the 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 way the riders prepare themselves now, like. They all have a peak that they're aiming for, and no matter what race they go to, if they're not on their peak, you can be damn sure that somebody else is. And 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 it's yeah, it is very difficult to win a race when when you're not when it's not one of the races you you focus for. Although Gilbert, you know, he he made a good job of winning winning pretty much everything last year. The only other rider I can really think of that could give it a good go is your your uh, poodle-headed friend. <laughs> you know, and I, I to to be fair, I, I it wouldn't surprise me if if he wins Paris Nice. You know, no, me neither, and I'm trying not to think about it. Yeah, Onkatil um, was quite a character, um, and I'm I'm using that word in a, a kind of very polite fashion, because as well as he was an incredibly arrogant man and very dismissive. You know, he he was quite open about the fact that there was a culture of dopage within cycling. You know, he, yeah. Yeah. he said essentially everybody takes dope. Um, but he also had a, a menage a trois with his, his wife and his wife's daughter, which yeah. was uh, very peculiar indeed. 
it's yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we better move on from there before we start talking about uh, inappropriate topics. Look, just, it, uh, just as a funny aside, there was a thing I don't know what you saw it on Twitter um, this week. There was um, a thing called Bike Books with a hashtag Bike Books that uh, you you know you you take the name of a of a famous book and you you change the title so as it becomes bike related and the winner got an an ebook copy of Ned Bolting's new appendage to his um, How I Won the Yellow Jumper book which I think is called How I Won the Green Jersey, but uh, there was a funny one called. Uh, Uncatilla Mockingbird. <laughs> My favourite one was actually yours, which was uh, A Tale of Two Cities. A Tale of Two Cities, yeah. It wasn't enough to win the feckin' e-book, though. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we finish talking about Paris-Nice, we need to mention the years 1981 to 1988. Um, and I know that you've you've left them off because I, I gave you a hard time about it being this, this week in Irish history, last week. But 1981, Stephen Roach wins the race. Riding in that iconic Peugeot jersey, still one of my favourite cycling strips of all time. Um, and then 1982 to 1988, um, your man Sean Kelly wins every year. Yeah, it was it's pretty unbelievable, you know. And uh, it, the, between them, they they won the Caldez time trial every one of those years as well. And Roach actually went on to win it in 1989, as as I said in the snippet as well. So you know, for for nine years in a row, they were really there thereabouts, and um, it's uh, I I don't know. It's a strange one. I remember hearing Sean Kelly talking to David Harmon on one of the one of the commentaries before, and uh, Harmon was asking him about these Paris wins. And Kelly said, you know, for the first two or three times, you know, he he was really trying to w- to win it, and it was really it was it was a goal, and he he really wanted to do it. But he said for the last few years, he kind of. <laughs> Not that you win Paris by accident, but he he said he he kind of ha- he happened upon these victories. He he wasn't going into the race to to try and win it. He was preparing for you know Paris Roubaix and and the Tour of Flanders and he and, and Milan San Remo of course. But he 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 said that he would just go to the race. He on stage two or three, he'd just end up in a breakaway, and and that breakaway just happened to be the one that contained six or seven riders that would gain three minutes on the peloton and the winner would come from those six or seven riders and he said that happened a couple of times that he just uh, just found himself in the leader's jersey in the race winning scenario and then defended it and and uh, obviously he had the ability to do that but um, yeah it was a strange one that he, he didn't even didn't even try to win I think I think that's what happens when you've got a racing brain so good that it happens automatically yeah I think I don't think he, he may have consciously thought about it but his, his body and his brain just knew it was the right thing to do yeah and i suppose when when you have the overall skill set that he has um or had maybe he still has i don't know he's he's still he's still fit a fit man definitely but when you have the skill set that he he had that he's you know capable of time trialing strong enough in the mountains and just this this beast of an all-rounder i mean paris is just a perfect race so we're going to watch that this week and we're going to have a lot of fun watching it. Um, if you think Killian sounds a, a bit less sparkling than his usual form, do you want to tell people what time you were in the pub till last night? I was, I was, I suppose I was there till about half one. That's um, the, the, the joy of an Irish pub. They say last order's half twelve, but Jesus, they were still serving pints when I was leaving. <laughs> and uh, we're recording this very early on Sunday morning, so congratulations, Killian. You've done a sterling job. Thanks. <laughs> If you want to help us out, you can leave a comment on iTunes because that really helps people find the show. 
if you want to make a donation to, to help cover costs and buy Killian a few pints that he probably regrets after last night, you can do that by going to www.velocast.cc and just using the donate button. But when you do, please leave a comment in, in the PayPal comments box that uh, it's for This Week in Cycling History, and that way we can pass some funds on to Killian. If you want to chat to us, we're on Twitter all the time. Killian is the Irish Peloton, and I'm Sofa Boy. And uh, we'd look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you.